Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the international affairs, foreign policy, and global development community, and world news aficionados of all stripes. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. The COVID-19 pandemic is just the latest iteration of what my guest today, Charles Kenny, calls the unending war between humanity and infectious disease. His new book, The Plague Cycle, documents and describes how the course of human history has been shaped by infectious disease. The book takes us from the dawn of humanity hundreds of thousands of years ago up to early 2021 to explain how we as a species and as a society have been challenged by microbes. The book is one of the best global health books I've read in a while, and it offers some really important historic grounding for understanding the current pandemic. So it was great to have Charles Kenny back on the show. About five years ago, we had a long conversation about his life and career and the interesting moments in global development, which his life and career intersected with. He is a well-known optimist, and in that conversation, he discusses and describes the roots of his optimistic outlook on the course of human history. That was a great conversation. It's available now exclusively to premium subscribers of the show, along with dozens of other conversations and interviews with thought leaders, newsmakers, and other people who have led interesting lives and careers in foreign policy and international affairs. To become a premium subscriber, please visit patreon.com slash globaldispatches or follow the links in the show notes of this episode or just go to globaldispatchespodcast.com. For now, here is my conversation with Charles Kenny, Senior Fellow at the Center for Global Development and author of the new book, The Plague Cycle, The Unending War Between Humanity and Infectious Disease. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. As I'm preparing for this interview, I just find myself like overwhelmed because of the scope of history that you cover in your book from the, you know, the dawn of humanity to early 2021. Let's maybe just start at the beginning as you do. And I learned from your book that we are related uh, to the same individual mitochondrial Eve. Just explain that concept of mitochondrial Eve and also describe what infectious diseases do we know might have impacted uh, her life and the life of those around her? Mitochondrial Eve is the first woman who we can say is sort of related to all people who are alive today. Um, And scientists sort of look at 
uh, our genetic material and they figure out about how fast it mutates and they go back and they say, well, look, if you look at the range of genetic material out there in humans today, you know, how, how many generations back do you have to go before you get to a, to a single person? Um, and, and it's a single woman. It's, it's mitochondrially. So she's not a real person, if you will. Uh, she's a, uh, but the ancestor to us all, at least in sort of some genetic sense of the term. And she lived you know, before civilization, she will have lived uh, in in Africa, probably in the Rift Valley, and uh, she'll have been part of a hunter gatherer uh, community. And she won't have been exposed to pretty much any diseases that just infect humans because there just weren't enough humans around. Uh, so she will have been uh, infected by diseases that also uh, affect animals. Um, you know, that's a there are a whole bunch of them, um, including yellow fever. You know, these are zoonoses. And of course, we all know about zoonoses today because COVID-19, sadly, is another one. Uh, it came to us, you know, probably from bats. So 100,000 years ago, infectious disease did not impact humanity too much. And it was when uh, humans started living together in civilization and in cities that infectious disease started to really take off. Uh, can you just describe that process? Sure. So diseases like measles um, are incredibly infectious, but once you've had measles, you don't get it again. Um, and so if you're a measles virus, you need lots of people to infect. Otherwise, you kind of you run out of new victims and the victims either die or they get better. And if they get better, they're immune to reinfection. And so the measles virus would just die out. So it needs lots and lots of people. So there's always new people to infect, uh, in particular, new children. So, you know, uh, uh, people aren't born with uh, immunity to measles. Um, so as long as enough new kids are being born, measles viruses always have somewhere new to go. But that takes a whole lot of people. Um, the estimate is about 500,000 people in order to keep the measles virus going in a community. And um, in pre-civilization, I mean, at the beginning, there weren't that many humans on the planet. But in pre-civilization, there certainly weren't that many humans around and connected and sort of you know densely living together in order to keep a disease like measles around so you know it, it didn't exist it uh, it evolved after humans um uh, started you know uh, farming and then started living in cities started living densely together and started trading with each other that's what gave uh, these new kinds of infectious diseases the mass of people they needed to survive. And so many of you know, humanity's greatest killers only emerged after uh, agriculture and civilization. And that includes diseases like smallpox and diseases like measles. Can you give an example of how early in civilization that an infectious disease altered the course of human history? The first sort of pandemic we know about uh, in, in early civilization uh, is the plague of Athens. Um, some of your uh, listeners might know Hippocrates is sort of traditionally thought of as the father of Western medicine. Uh, and uh, he was uh, around in Athens at the time of uh, this, this plague that, that struck the city as it was fighting Sparta. Uh, despite his best attempts, and actually some of the things he suggested were, were reasonably sensible, like burying the dead pretty quickly. Uh, Athens you know, lost a lot of people to an infection that's quite well described by the historian Herodotus. And uh, uh, the disease kind of 
weakened Athens, uh, killed off uh, Athens, the, the leader of the city, and is you know, one of the factors behind Sparta winning that war. Um, sadly, Hippocrates, despite you know, sort of being best known for the Hippocratic Oath, this idea that doctors should first do no harm, um, wasn't actually that generous a spirit. When the Persians came along and said, hey, look, we've got this plague too, he sort of took one look and said, I'm not helping the enemy and 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 turned his back on them. Uh, this is the, you know, the the early version of vaccine nationalism, if you will, uh, refusing to help others, um, despite the fact it's probably in your best interest to do so. So ever since the first pandemics we've known about, we've been having these rather foolish responses to, to infection. But, you know, after that, you just get a litany of plagues sort of through through history. Uh, the the Perhaps one of the most sort of famous is the plague of Justinian, which was pretty much... Uh, you know, helped put the death knell to to the Roman Empire. Um, you know, killed off uh, a large proportion of the population of the Roman Empire, and and allowed Islam to spread uh, uh, through uh, North Africa and the 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 uh, Goths to uh, spread throughout uh, Western Europe. And then, of course, you know, we have the the, the Black Death, and on it goes. So. Um, Throughout history, we've seen these massive pandemics that kill, you know, millions, hundreds of millions of people um, uh, emerging, and they are just a sort of uh, a, a a side effect of having a dense, globally connected planet. And it was those global connections in like the uh, 14th, 15th, 16th century that caused just mass death, you know, on on this hemisphere as well, as you uh, demonstrate in your book. Again, like I think underscoring just how profound a world historic force uh, infectious disease is. Absolutely. The Americas, well, and, and, and Australasia, not least, would look just completely different without the effects of infection. I mean, it's just ridiculous to think that, you know, a few hundred Spanish troops could overrun the scale of civilizations that they discovered in the New World without the fact that infection had already fatally weakened these civilizations. So, you know, we would have a New World that looks much more like uh, uh, parts of the uh, uh, Asia and 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 the Africas, if it weren't for the impact of of disease in the New World, which you know, along with immense violence, let's be clear, but it was the major factor in the in the fact that in in the majority of um, the countries in the Americas, the Native American population is a small minority. You know, nearly all of the people in those countries are descended not from the original population, but from migrants who came later, and that's because disease wiped out nearly all of the people who were already there. And uh, we're like sprinting through history here, but, <laughs> but, it, but it's, I think it's important, I think, to underscore some of the key themes uh, of your book. So let's fast forward to the Industrial Revolution. Uh, how did the plague cycle you know, impact the course of history and impact you know life on planet Earth during the Industrial Revolution. What did that next iteration of the plague cycle look like? So, if you imagine the cycle starting with the rise of of cities and agriculture, and that setting off the sort of firestorm of new diseases, and peaking, if you will, at the time of uh, of the sort of first globalization. So. Uh, Columbus reaching America, Vasco da Gama going around Africa. Uh, 
the Industrial Revolution is when you start to see in parts of the world a decline, but only as we get into the Industrial Revolution, because frankly, some of the lowest life expectancies we've seen worldwide were in some of the early cities, uh, early, uh, early periods of the Industrial Revolution in the United Kingdom. So people pack into cities to work in factories in, in cities that don't have sewer systems, or at least don't have nearly enough uh, in, in the way of sewage systems. Uh, no rules on housing density or any of that kind of stuff. Uh, no rules on on um, food and cleanliness and so on. They're death traps, and and we see you know life expectancies drop into the into the twenties. In the United Kingdom, and yeah, in the United Kingdom, in the United in the Kingdom, country in the world at the time, at the right? time, which was that. I mean, that to me is was one of the most fascinating. Uh, th- there's a lot of like great and in, in fascinating tidbits in your book, but that to me uh, was just, I think, illustrative uh, of of just how profound an impact infectious disease has on life expectancy, even in the wealthiest country at the time. Yes, and and frankly, you know. Britain does not come out looking terribly good in this book uh, for for a number of reasons. One is that early in the Industrial Revolution, uh, the response in the UK is pretty much, oh, well, it's that the poor are being lazy and they're not eating properly. Um, And it takes a while uh, for the sort of the liberal end of, of UK opinion to move towards the idea that, oh, well, maybe they're poor because they're sick. Um, and then they do actually start uh, putting in place, amongst other things, sewage systems on the basis of completely terrible medicine. They think that the, the sickness is caused by miasma, by bad smells. But luckily, the way you deal with miasma is, is through better sewage systems that take the bad smells away. So, you know, uh, even, even the wrong medical theory led to the to to the better outcome. Meanwhile, in the British Empire, uh, cholera is being spread by the British Army, particularly in India. And the response, uh, the British leadership in India being uh, good Malthusians to a man is, oh, well, there are too many Indians. This is probably a good thing for the quality of life of people in India. Um, so, you know, all in all, the, 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 the 19th, 19th century Britain is, you know, uh, really shows itself up for what bad theories can do um, in in terms of you know destroying quality of life worldwide. And when was it uh, that life expectancy in cities uh, began to outpace that of life expectancy in rural areas? So the gap starts to drop in 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 the middle of the nineteenth century uh, in London, and I talk about this. At, quite length in the book, um, the, the first step of improve, improving the sewage system is uh, they connect all of the existing um, sewage pits and so on to a, a sewage system that dumps all of the sewage into the River Thames uh, with a theory that it'll then be you know taken downstream uh, on the flow. They made the mistake of having some of those sewers empty into the river above the water intakes for a large part of London. Um, Not surprisingly, the result is a massive cholera outbreak. And uh, luckily uh, for the people suffering uh, uh, that cholera outbreak, the other thing that the system does is pretty much make the Thames solid uh, with excrement. The smell is terrible. And again, this is at a time when uh, many of the leading lights of medical thought uh, think that, that what causes disease is bad smell. Well, 
the Thames full of excrement smells really bad and the Houses of Parliament in the UK is right on the Thames. And so this bad smell is wafting through the windows into the House of Lords and the House of Commons. And, you know, the British elite is going, ah! Uh, and so they realise that something has to be done and they hire this engineer, Bazaljet, to build um, intercepting sewers, huge great sewage lines that take all of the sewage uh, out of the centre of London, um, down the Thames, uh, uh, and way below the water intakes um, for, uh, you know, the East End of London. And pretty much, you know, that ends cholera in London. And it's the start of uh, a sort of sewage revolution, if you will, that um, a bunch of other cities quite quickly thereafter uh, in in the UK, in Europe, in the United States, start putting in place uh, new water and sewage systems. But it goes, you know, far beyond that. You, you, you start seeing... The term "the Great Unwashed" uh, uh, appears sort of in in the later half of the nineteenth century, and it's a new idea because everybody used to be unwashed, and suddenly being clean becomes a, a, a you know a fashionable thing to be, and cities start opening um, uh, swimming swimming pools that they're, they're not actually swimming pools they're baths and they're called baths in the, in the United States they're, they're, they're um you know the idea isn't you get exercised by swimming the idea is you go to these public baths to clean yourself um and they start opening in cities and you start getting regulations on uh, noxious trades uh, and you start getting regulations on housing density and and uh, you know a huge amount of government intervention of one kind or another and that sort of sets off a, a, a bit of a revolution in terms of of health and life expectancy in cities and so you know by the early 20th century you're seeing cities in in the UK and the United States being pretty much as as healthy as rural areas and this begins what you describe as a flattening of the the plague cycle, uh, which is also accompanied by uh, technological innovations like vaccines and other public health measures, uh, which, uh, you know, just as plagues uh, have impacted the course of human history, uh, so has the ability of humanity to confront some of these plagues and infectious diseases. The, the vaccine story is fascinating and and sort of people traditionally think of it as starting with with Jenner a, a British doctor and and in many ways it does but there's a there's a a wonderful sort of story before that which really starts in in China and then spreads to India and through the Middle East which is of inoculation uh which nowadays we kind of use interchangeably with vaccination but it is it is a slightly you know it, it's sort of one kind if you will of vaccination and slightly different and what inoculation was to begin with was people taking scabs from the poxes you get from smallpox, um, grinding them up and sniffing them in their nose or uh, burning them a little bit and then sniffing them or sometimes taking some of the, the pus out of the pox. Sorry for being disgusting, uh, but taking some of the pus out of the pox and scratching it into uh, people's arms. And this technique uh, is risky. Sometimes it leads to people getting smallpox, and smallpox is a deadly disease. And so you know, some people died. But your chance of dying was much lower. Your chance of getting a sort of mild case of smallpox uh, rather than a full-blown case that could kill you is much higher. And so as you know, smallpox spreads, so does this technique. And it uh, reaches Turkey, where uh, it, it, a, a, the wife of a, a British diplomat, Lady Mary Wortley Montagu, uh, 
sees it being done. And uh, she's had smallpox reasonably recently. Um, she was a beauty, but but uh, as a result of smallpox, she lost her eyebrows, um, and so was, um, you know, touchy on the subject, if you will. She wanted to avoid her son getting it, so got him uh, inoculated, and it worked. And she brought it back to the UK and was mates with uh, the, the the Queen in the UK at the time, and you know gets the Queen to do it, and that of course makes it trendy. So it spreads spreads through the UK, and the way that Jenna uh, tests his vaccine, which is a similar approach, except it takes the uh, the pus from a cowpox, uh, a related disease of from smallpox that usually affects cows, and uses that to um, uh, uh, infect humans, which actually gives them immunity against smallpox. But the way he tested whether his approach had worked was he variolates, he uses this inoculation process on the kid that he's just uh, vaccinated. Um, and so sort of the first vaccine relied on testing uh, on this earlier inoculation approach. And vac- vaccination, this original vaccination spreads quite rapidly and, and worldwide um, in the in the 19th century. Um, you know, the, the Spanish king sets up a kind of global effort to, to, to spread it around the Spanish empire. The Swedes by 1812 are saying everybody must get vaccinated. But sadly, we didn't see any new vaccinations for another 80 years or so, partially because Jenner didn't really understand what he'd done. Um, he, you know, had this sort of idea that People who got cowpox didn't seem to get smallpox, but he didn't understand why. Um, and we have to wait for uh, the, the, the French scientist Pasteur to figure out you know, why this might have worked and then sort of apply a similar technique to a bunch of other uh, diseases, in, including rabies and anthrax, and sort of you know, uh, uh, explain the underlying science behind the idea so other people can go off and create the range of vaccines we have today. And those vaccines spread worldwide. One of the problems with um, sewage and sanitation is it's quite expensive. Uh, it involves, you know, millions of bricks in the case of the London sewage system, for example. And um, skinflint uh, empires weren't willing to lay that kind of money out uh, in um, colonies. So the sort of the sanitation revolution really didn't affect m- much of the planet uh, until way into the 20th century. Vaccinations are cheap um, as a rule and reasonably easy uh, to spread worldwide. And so a lot of the progress we've seen against especially childhood infection in the developing world hasn't been underpinned by sanitation. Sanitation's played an important role and should play a bigger role going forward. But it's been underpinned instead by these cheaper techniques like vaccination, like bed nets, like oral rehydration therapy, which is basically giving kids with diarrhea, water and sugar and salt. It's a cheap and incredibly effective way to stop kids dying from uh, uh, you know, stomach bugs. And, and maybe just to underscore um, the profound effect of vaccines on you know, the course of human civilization. I mean, you have some statistics in your book just demonstrating how many more children now live to the age of five years old compared to, say, in 1950. Yeah. If, you, if we had the death rates of the 1950s, actually, if we had the death rates of the 1970s, the, there would be sort of one child di- uh, under the age of five dying every second worldwide. Um, we still have one child dying every five seconds worldwide, and most of those deaths are easily preventable, and so that's shocking. But still, 
you know, it's one fifth of the rate we would have had only a few decades ago. We have made incredible progress. And another way of looking at it is to view it from the point of view of the parents. So the average mother and father worldwide, the average mother worldwide is having a lot fewer kids um, than they used to. But also those kids are much more likely to survive. And when you put those two things together, it means we've gone from a world where the average parent would expect to bury at least one child before the age of five, possibly two or three, to a time when that's a rarity worldwide. That is, you know, a a rare tragedy worldwide rather than the expected outcome of being a parent. And, you know, frankly, if I wanted one measure of how the world is a better place than it used to be, it would be that. You published this book uh, in the midst of a pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic. And, you know, your book to me offers almost like a potential heuristic with which to understand the long-term historical implications of this pandemic that we are currently all living through. So I'm curious to learn from you, what do you see as the potential historic impact of this pandemic? Like if you were writing your book, uh, you know, a hundred years from now or 200 years from now, looking back, what do you think the long-term impacts of this pandemic might be on, you know, the course of human history? One of the things that that looking at some of previous pandemics tells you about COVID-19 is that it is a, a, a tragic event that could have been a lot less tragic, but also is a a lot less tragic than some previous pandemics, if you will. Uh, We are looking at millions of deaths, many of which, perhaps most of which, were avoidable. But, you know, this sort of pales in comparison to the Black Death uh, or the Plague of Justinian or what happened uh, in the years after Columbus reached the Americas. and. In some ways, I think that points to how large the long-term effect is likely to be Um, in that I mentioned in the book, you know, the Black Death had had an impact uh, in the long term. You know, by wiping out about a third of the workforce, it did actually slightly improve the the wages and quality of life of those people left behind slightly in a a way that we'd hardly notice because we'd consider it going from absolute poverty to absolute poverty, but still, you know, an improvement. Uh, But, you know, that took wiping out a third of the population and and a lot of life just almost went on exactly as before. The the English and the French were fighting the, the Hundred Years' War at the time and they stopped for sort of six months, but, you know, then they're back at it. Um, in, In some ways, it's remarkably remarkable how small the the sort of immediate impact of of the black death was on on historical uh, processes and so i know some people at the moment are talking about oh well we're all going to move out of cities um because they're dangerous and we've discovered that you know zoom works i i, I would be doubtful to be honest um i i think probably uh we wouldn't we we, we aren't going to see a huge effect and i mean through most of history COVID probably wouldn't even have been noticed as a new disease. So many people every year were dying from, you know, infections with overlapping symptoms with COVID-19. I'm not sure anybody would have noticed, frankly, the difference. Um, So, 
you know, that's that's in a way a sign of our, our progress against disease. And and maybe because we've made so much progress against disease, this one will have a bigger effect than you might think just on the basis of its sort of absolute death count. But I still think probably, you know, in 200 years, this will not be, you know, a chapter of history books. It will be closer to a footnote. Um, is there anything else you'd you'd want to like mention or, or bring into this conversation? Um, I I think it's you know, one other thing that uh, the the history taught me at least over the last hundred years is uh, sort of back to the tragic element of COVID nineteen that uh, you know a hundred years ago we were dealing with. Um, the 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 so-called Spanish flu, although probably not Spanish, the 1918 flu flu uh, pandemic, and we were having discussions about the role of closing schools and masking and uh, social distancing and so on uh, on on the spread of that disease. Before that, uh, during a pneumonic plague outbreak uh, in the in the late 19th century in Manchuria. Uh, Chinese doctors were saying, let's have uh, restrictions on travel um, and and masking and social distancing. Um, And it kind of sort of helped work to to, uh, end that pandemic. And yet here we are again, um, having apparently, you know, forgotten a lot of those lessons. Um, And, you know, frankly, um, it you don't need to look 100 years back. Um, you know, a number of states in the United States, including you know Texas and Florida and so on, have completely opened up again and say, you know, no, no need for, for masking. Um, it does seem incredible how unwilling we are to learn the lessons of, of what works. And we've put all of our faith um, in, in these new vaccines, and they're fantastic. And they are um, rolling out very fast. And although, you know, at the moment, it is globally incredibly inequitable, the, the rollout of, of these vaccines, still, it will probably be by far the most rapid global rollout of a vaccine ever in history. So that's all great. But, you know, with the best will in the world, you need to test these vaccines, there's going to be a gap between um, vaccine invention and vaccine rollout around the world, we still need these other approaches like um, masking and distancing and, and testing and tracking and so on. And we just seem unwilling to put in the the effort, the 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 resources, um, and 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 the sort of restrictions on behaviour, in order to make sure that people don't die as a you know as a result in the meantime. And so, you know, while I'm I'm sort of basically optimistic about the courses course of pandemics going forward and the course of infection going forward, I I believe we'll get back on a cycle of fewer and fewer people dying from these infections going forward. You have to have some doubts because we seem so good at forgetting the lessons of the past in in a way that could you know lead to an uh, another pandemic that's even worse with even more deaths well charles the book was absolutely fascinating you are a a great narrator to take readers through uh you know the course of human history uh and i just highly recommend it i'll post a link to it in the show notes thank you thank you all right thank you so much to charles that was a great conversation the book is super i really highly recommend it he is just a a great narrator of human history it's a lively read it's accessible it's not wonky it's interesting 
I could not more highly recommend this book. Uh, and I will post a link to it in the show notes of this episode. While you're there, please also uh, click on the link to become a premium subscriber where you will unlock my conversation with Charles Kenny about his life and career, along with dozens of other conversations with key newsmakers in international affairs. Thank you. See you next time. Bye.